This is the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I really hope that you guys enjoy today's show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Before I get into the show today, I got to ask you guys to go over to libertarianchristians.com and support the Libertarian Christian Institute. They bring you this podcast, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, and a bunch of other really great podcasts, as well as articles by people like me. And so if you want more great content, we all have jobs and families, and uh, this is a very large time commitment for a lot of us. And so any way that you can support us, if you want to donate or give some extra money, that would be incredible. We would really appreciate that, and it helps us to continue to produce great content. So go over there to libertarianchristians.com, check out everything that we're doing, and I know you won't regret it. So thank you very much for that. All right, on the show today, I want to talk about an issue that I think is going to get a little personal, and there are going to be some very aggressive positions that I hold on this issue that I'm going to be sharing today, but I'm hoping that we can start a dialogue because this is a very controversial issue that I think a lot of people have not fully tried to wrap their head around, and that is the fact that the American church is in decline and that there are a lot of people in the United States that are either that are either not participating in the church in the way that they would have before or that are leaving the church altogether. And on the left, we have kind of this, this deconstruction, uh, ex-evangelical movement of progressive Christians that don't believe in the traditional mission and values of the church, at least not the American church. And then on the right, you have people that are just not interested in participating. They might say that they believe in God, that it's okay to live a good life, but they're they're not involved in the local church. And I was in ministry for eight years before I became a teacher. So I have a lot of experience with this, and I have a lot of thoughts on this issue as well. And I think sometimes this conversation can become very one-sided, that progressives have a couple of reasons that they posit for why people leave the church and some of them are legitimate, and I think some of them are completely illegitimate. And then people that are on the other side that don't necessarily reject Christianity or reject uh, traditional Christian teachings, but nevertheless don't participate actively in the local church, they have their reasons for doing that as well. And I want to break these down today. And the thing that motivated me to do this is that there is an article that we're going to explore today that was published on Christianity Today, I think back in June, by Matthew Bates, a really great New Testament scholar. I had him on the show talking about his uh, great work on the gospel a few months back. So check out that episode of the podcast and really check out all of Matthew's work because it's it's really good. But the article that he has is titled Conscious Uncoupling from Church is the New Temptation. And the subtitle is Duns and Ums are Leaving the Sanctuary or Loitering Outside the Door, But When Have They Actually Left? And in this article, <clears throat> which I think is really good, he tries to deal with the actual issues as to why people are leaving the church. And it seems to be happening at a, a dramatic pace. And I can just say, you know, from my own experience of all of the kids that I went to youth group with in high school, I think that there are maybe like two of us that still go to church on a regular basis. Now, granted, I didn't go to the largest church in the entire world. So it wasn't like our youth group was huge, but I think that's pretty indicative. I think that it was much more common for kids to be involved in church in the early 2000s than it currently is right now. And a lot of people that I know have have, uh, if not explicitly walked away to the faith, it, it away from the faith, it's just become a marginal part of their life. And I think this article really does deal with some of the most important issues uh, and some of the most important problems that are plaguing the American church. So I want to read through this article. And like I always do when I have an article on the show, I'm going to stop periodically and just kind of give you some of my perspective and, and fill in some of some of the, uh, not, not the gaps, because this is a very well-written article, but I'm, I'm going to further elaborate the points that Matthew Bates brings 
comes up in this article. So again, it's called Conscious Uncoupling from Church is the New Temptation. And for those of you guys that don't know what conscious uncoupling means, it's a term that all of the hipster celebrities use when they get a divorce. So instead of just saying they're getting a divorce, they have to make themselves sound like they are much more philosophically uh, capable than they actually are. And so they call it a conscious uncoupling. We all know that as a divorce. So essentially, it is why are, why are people divorcing themselves or why are people leaving the church? So Matthew Bates writes this, I have a friend who faded away from church during his undergraduate years. First, his church involvement became sporadic. Then he stopped attending events that featured worship or fostered Christian community. For a while, he continued to claim he was a Christian. A year later, he dropped the label. Some may think he's still a Christian because he once got saved and was baptized. He doesn't. I don't either. Regardless of one's theory of salvation, it's clear that although God hasn't given up on him, he has quit church. My friend is not alone. He's among the many convinced there may be something to this whole Jesus business, but who but who, who've disconnected from Christian community. People who say they don't have a religious identity, though many still embrace some Christian beliefs and engage in various spiritual practices, are projected to rise from about 30% today to as much as 52% in 50 years, right? CT reporter Daniel Silliman in response to a recent Pew Research Center data. The pandemic is also part of the faith picture in America. In the rise of um, CT writer Mike Moore suggests that just as COVID-19 exposed weaknesses in our systems and relationships, the same accelerated unraveling has descended on the church, revealing a major decline in congregational involvement. I want to stop right there and just remind my listeners, and I know that the majority of you that are listening to this will agree with me, but those of you that might be on the fence about this, this is a very important point. As time goes on, it has become so obvious that most of the COVID restrictions that forced us to shut down our churches did nothing to actually keep anybody safe. And there are a lot of people that knew that from the very beginning. And the policy always should have been, it always should have been from the very start, that if you are afraid of it, we can make accommodations for you, but everyone else that's willing to incur that risk on them, upon themselves should be able to take those risks. And we know that all of the all of the lies and all of the narratives that were spun about the extent of COVID and how deadly it was, all of that wound up not being true. It just wound up not being true at all. And the fact that there are many people that are not going to church on a regular basis is one of the casualties, one of the many casualties, one of the many unnecessary casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have to we have to make that a point right here, right? And and that's not and I know that for a lot of people they think that COVID is over, but this is one of these issues that we can never forget because we cannot let it happen again. I wanted to make that point. Now, if you're someone that thinks that they got that the government got COVID basically right, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to the episodes I did with Lori Calhoun on her book, Questioning the COVID Company Line. That might give you some context. We're going to go ahead and, and read on. So it's the recent data shows a majority of churches are below their pre-pandemic attendance, he writes. A study released early this year reveals that church attendance is down by 6% from 34% to 2019 and 28% in 2021. For whatever reason, busyness, laziness, fatigue, deconstruction, or trauma, many have abandoned ship for now. Some say they want to stay involved in Christian activities, but never quite make it happen, or they intend to re-engage once they get fresh bearings, but the future hasn't arrived and perhaps it never will. So Matthew Bates actually brings up a lot of really important issues here, I think. Um, I know that there are a lot of reasons why people... There are so many reasons why people are not involved in church. And the ones that I can speak of the most is that people get too busy. And the reality is, if you are a fan of Austrian economics and you've read Ludwig von Mises and you understand praxeology, you know that praxeology is the theory of human action. And one of the fundamental tenets of economics is that the decisions that we make show what we truly value. It's not what we say. You know, there's that old adage You uh, there's that old adage that it's, um, it's not what you say, it's what you do, or something along those lines. Um, 
that's the truth. And so there are a lot of people that say that they value being involved in church. But then when it comes to their kids being in sports or when it comes to watching football on Sunday afternoons, they will, without hesitation, put church to the side. And that's a big reason why people don't do that. So busyness is a reason why people leave the church. Another one is laziness, too. And this is one that I think got some of my friends at least uh, starting to step out the door. Is that We work very hard all week long, and we have a lot going on, and we overschedule ourselves, and we have all of these obligations. And so on Sunday morning, a lot of people, if they can choose to stay at home and watch TV and drink coffee on their couch or lay in bed or whatever it is that uh, people do on Sunday mornings, they will often choose that over church. And that's absolutely true. And I'm really thankful that Matthew Bates brings that up because I think that there is a denial by some people who have deconstructed, who have left the church to think that that might be part of the reason why some people leave. And I really do sincerely believe that there are people that might be a little uh, oriented to the left who use, <laughs> who, who try, Again, just like the term conscious uncoupling is a, a philosophically souped up way of saying that you got a divorce, I think that there are a lot of people that deconstruct or make up reasons why they don't want to go to church when in reality what's behind that is that they're just too busy or too lazy to go. And I really appreciate that Matthew Bates um, addressed that. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everyone. I'm not even saying that's true for most people, but that is a reason why people don't do it. And if you consider yourself to be a Christian and you're not participating regularly in church because you're too busy, then it's just a matter of priorities. And th- I think that people just need to be honest about that. Like, if church is not a priority to you, you shouldn't say that it is. You should just say at this point in your life or whatever, it's on the back burner. Um, but anyways, that you know that that's that's a big part of this, and I'm glad that, like I said, Matthew Bates is is wrestling with all of these issues. So he continues on. These downward trends point to big questions. How do we know when someone has decisively quit church? When have they officially left the fold? And perhaps more importantly, is Christian community necessary for uh, salvation so that it forms part of the essential definition of what it means to be Christian? These aren't new questions per se, but they carry new urgency. Scripture gives us absolutes on what it means to enter Christian community. It also gives us guidelines that help us discern our spiritual relationship in relation to that community. According to Jesus, the church began when he asked Peter, who do you say I am? After Peter confessed, you are the Christ. Jesus replied by saying, on this rock, I will build my church. Christians might disagree about how the church should be administered, but they should agree that it started with Peter's profession and grows when others declare the same. To respond to the gospel in a saving fashion is to pledge pistis, which is the Greek word for faith or allegiance, which we talked about on the show that I interviewed Matthew Bates, to Jesus the Christ, uh, the forgiving and restoring king. The standard way to make an oath of fealty to King Jesus in the New Testament was by calling upon his name as part of the baptismal process, it should be no different today. When a person expresses faith or loyalty to him as Lord and King, that person becomes a part of the one true church, the community where the Holy Spirit is present. Praying a certain prayer, studying scripture, or attending worship service is not sufficient by itself. A person must pledge fealty to the King Jesus and persist in that profession. The church then is a group of people that authentically declares Jesus is the Christ in such a way that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in their midst. Now, I really appreciate again that Bates brings this point up that being a Christian does not mean that you go to church and pray your prayers. It doesn't mean that you regularly attend church on a Sunday morning. It doesn't mean that you occasionally read the Bible. It's more than that. All those things are important. All of those things are a part of having an authentic walk with Christ. All of that is completely necessary. Okay. But 
those things in and of themselves do not make you a Christian. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are walking away from the faith or why so many people are choosing to put other priorities ahead of the church is not that they don't like sincerely believe that God exists, and it's not that they don't sincerely believe that uh, that that Jesus is uh, raised from the dead, but it's just that they've always assumed that Christianity means checking off some boxes. You go to church on Sunday morning, you read your Bible every now and then, you give a little bit to the offering plate, you try to be a generally nice person. Like People assume that that's what it means to be a Christian, but it's a lot deeper than that. It has to do with making loyal, it has to do with making a pledge of loyalty or commitment to Jesus as king. That is fundamental. And so when I was in youth ministry, the way that I used to describe this to my kids, I, when we talked about faith and what it meant, was that the way that a lot of people conceptualize faith is that in your mind, you have all of these different boxes. So you have a box where you put your job and you have a box where you put your family and you have a box where you put your uh, your your possessions and all of those kind of things. So we have all these boxes in our mind. And for a lot of people that consider themselves to be Christians, they put their Christian faith in one of those boxes in their mind. So it's there. It's not like that faith is not legitimate, it is a part of what they believe, but it's only a part of it. And the way that we should conceptualize faith is that that should be the box that we put all of those other things in. So our faith is the box and our jobs and our families and all of those things go into that box of our faith so that it determines the shape of everything else in our life. So our faith has to be the fundamental premise uh, from which we start. And it has to be, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if we're thinking about this in terms of epistemology, you know, or the, the way that we understand our knowledge, like our belief in Jesus as Messiah and the resurrection and the forgiveness of sins and all of those things that are tied up with that has to be what colors every aspect of our lives. And I think a lot of people walk away from the church because they grew up in churches that were simply okay with them making their Christian faith one box among many instead of making it the box in which everything else was contained. I really do think that that's why a lot of people were walking away and I'm glad that Bates is bringing that up. And in his article he's going to try to he's going to try to outline what it means to really authentically have that that communion with God and have that communion more uh, not more importantly, have that communion with God and also equally have that communion with other people, the family of God. So he goes on. He says, it's common truism to say the church isn't equivalent to the building, but we need to add that it is not synonymous with official Christian fellowships, ministries, or organizations. Church happens whenever two meet, provided they are gathering under Jesus's banner. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. No matter the size or nature of the gathering, if Jesus is given authority to rule, then he is present and church is occurring right there. To quit the church then is to cease being a part of the people that collectively proclaim Jesus as the king. When a person no longer gathers gathers with others under that banner, they miss out on the Holy Spirit's sovereign direction over the corporate body, as well as the Spirit's gift and special rescuing benefits. Apart from these basics, there is no definitive way to measure whether a person has left the church. To add absolutes beyond pledging fidelity to King Jesus is to risk falling afoul of God's grace. This is the problem Paul was combating in Galatia, see Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Those who add requirements fail to see that God, through the gracious gift of Jesus and rescuing Christ, has created one and only one righteous family, and that family is uniquely defined by allegiance to Jesus as the Christ King. And so in weighing what it means for a person to leave the church, consider what follows a helpful gauge rather than a rigid yardstick, he's going to say. But before we move in, he, he gives three reasons why he thinks uh, people are leaving the church. And he makes the fundamental point that is absolutely essential, absolutely important that we have to understand is that the church was always intended to be the community of believers. And I think that we can trace this line back through kind of Western individualism, and I think really back to the Reformation where the Reformation, as I've said many times on the show, the Reformers were absolute legends, intellectual giants. We should respect them, but it doesn't mean that they got everything right, as if the church was great up
up until, I don't know, some certain point in the early church period, and then for a thousand years they got it wrong, and then all of a sudden in the, the, the 16th century they figured everything out that we need to know. No, the Reformers, I think, really moved the church in the right direction, but they weren't perfect. And I think that one of the legacies of the Reformation has been the emphasis on individual salvation. So instead of it being about incorporation into the larger church, which is fundamental to New Testament theology, it's been about me and my individual relationship with God, and it's been about me and my individual sin, and it's been about me and my individual salvation. And that doesn't mean that that's not there in the Bible. But what's the purpose of being rescued? It's about becoming a part of God's family. And again, as Paul says throughout all of Galatians, like Galatians 3, uh, 1 through 5, Paul is very angry there, and he's saying that like the thing that defines the church is is the fact that they have the presence of the Holy Spirit. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Uh, Paul outlines in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, those that put their faith in the Messiah, that put their faith in the gospel, have the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that is what defines the people of God. And Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians are all extended linked treatises on what it means to be a part of God's family. It's this Jew plus Gentile community that is designed to be the people that God always intended humanity to be. That's it. We're the new Israel. We are the people that God called. And again, if you could look back in Genesis chapter one and two, God's vision for creation is that he would be king over all creation. And we as a united humanity would rule creation on his behalf wisely with him providing everything that we need to rule over this creation. And the church is the reestablishment of that, uh, that goal there. And so one of the one I think one of the again we we've already outlined two reasons here why people leave the church that I think are really important. Number one, it's the fact that they make Christianity a part of their life instead of making it the defining value of their life, and that's really big. And then the other thing is that I think we've been taught by the Western Church to only think about our spiritual life in terms of how it impacts us. It's about what God can do for me and mine alone. And church is kind of secondary to that. Church is just where other people that have also had a personal experience relate, instead of being the 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 communion or the gap of all of those that put their faith in the Messiah. Those are two huge problems. So I wanted to make sure that I laid that out there before we get into the three uh, problems that Matthew Bates has identified in his uh, in his article here. So the very first problem that he's going to identify says, first, is the Holy Spirit urging reconnection? Uh, while comparing the church to a body with many different parts, Paul says, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is, common immersion in the Holy Spirit brings diverse Christians into unity. Moreover, we were all given the one spirit to drink. That means the Holy Spirit courses through the body and maintains our unity. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And Bates is right. This is a very important passage in the New Testament. And Corinthians shows, uh, 1 Corinthians, and to a certain degree, 2 Corinthians, demonstrates just how dangerous church can be when Christians refuse to be united with one another and would rather put their own petty interest ahead of the interests of others. So great reference there. He's going to go on. In other words, if a person is convict or convinced that they can be a Christian all by their lonesome and have no need for other parts of the king's body, then in all likelihood, they've quit church. Those who have completely numbered the desire to gather with others under Jesus's lordship are those who have likely left. By contrast, if they're still under the authority of Jesus's kingship, then a sovereign spirit will not permit an I don't need you mindset. 
if this still, if they still yearn to reconnect, it's safe to say that person is still allowing the Holy Spirit, some safe to sovereignly direct. And I think that this is a really good point. And I know that there are a lot of Protestants in particular that hate the idea of obligation. There's this sense, and I think that it does go back to like, I think episode nine of the of this show of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, I did a review of a book by a, a Christian historian named Michael Kidd on the rise of evangelicalism and the United States. States. And there's always been a very heavily pietistic and emotional undercurrent to American evangelicalism that one of the characteristics of evangelical thought has been this feeling that we have that God is present in our life and that God is working. And I think that that led to the charismatic tradition and all kinds of other offshoots from that. And one of my, one of the things that I've, I've seen over and over again in my experience as a Protestant, even talking to many Protestant ministers is that there's this fundamental assumption that people have to feel it in order for it to be authentic. But if you think about that logic, it doesn't make a lot of sense because there are plenty of days where I get up in the morning and I work out and I don't feel like I want to do it, but I do it because I know it's the right thing to do and it will make me better. And then it's the same thing with work. Every day when we wake up, like we don't necessarily want to go to work. And in fact, for most of us there, we probably want to go to work less, uh, more, less times than we, uh, than we do actually want to go to. I actually kind of like my job. So I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind going into work and it also helps that I'm off in the summer. So, you know, there's that. It's the perks of being a teacher. Um, but with that, we have this kind of aversion to anything that to, to anything that uh, that looks like obligation. And I think for a lot of Protestants, the idea that we would go to church simply because we're obliged to do so, without there being any sort of emotion behind it, is a, a non sequitur. It's a bad thing. It's it's marginalized in Protestantism. But I don't think that's the case because there are so many good things that we do, from dieting and exercising to seeing family members that might be frustrating to us to going to work every day that we do not feel like doing. Like one of the characteristic qualities of being a responsible adult is that you spend the majority of your life doing things that you don't necessarily want to do. That's just it because being an adult is all about responsibility. It's not about having fun. It's not about feeling good. It's about taking care of the responsibilities that God has given you. That's just such an, a fundamental part of being an adult. And we don't extend as Protestants oftentimes that same logic to church. We think that obligation is a Catholic thing, and that's why the Catholics have their own problems, which, you know, I mean, they're, they're, there's a lot that we said about that. We're not going to get into that debate today. But in reality, I've always kind of liked the idea of obligation because there are plenty of times on Sunday mornings that I could do something else. And there are plenty of times on Sunday mornings where it's like, I mean, I'm so, st I'm so set in my ways that it's not really a temptation for me to not leave church. Like, I would go just because I'm the kind of person that needs to have a routine, <laughs> you know, but, but. There are definitely times when it would be easier to skip than it would not be. And sometimes I do it simply because that's what I do on Sunday mornings and because I know that this is a part of my responsibility to my church and to God. And that's okay. And so I know that there have been a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of pastors and a lot of evangelical leaders and a lot of, uh, you know, particularly, uh, angsty Christian teenagers. I was one of those at one point. And I, I held this exact same view at one point that look at the people that come to church and then sit out in the lobby the entire time as automatically being wrong. Like you shouldn't just show up to church and sit outside. You need to come into the service and participate. And I used to really feel that way because I know at the church I grew up in, there were, there was a group of men who they bring their family to church. They dress up in their Sunday best. And the entire time they'd sit out in the lobby and they talk about UK basketball or whatever it is that they were, they were talking about in church. And I used to be really judgmental about that. I used to think, you know what? I, I think this is, I think this is wrong. Like why, why can't they take their faith more seriously? Why can't they get inside um, the, the doors of the sanctuary and, and actually participate in worship? But then 
as time went on and as I got a little bit older and as I gained some more experience, I realized that while that's not optimal for their faith and while I feel like those people still have a lot of growing to do, they're still there. And they're still making sure that their families are showing up and they're not just dropping them off and leaving. Like they're involved to a certain degree, not to the extent that I think a mature Christian should be, but they're still involved to a certain degree in the life of the church. And so, yes, it's easy to look at those people as being hypocritical. And I think a lot of those people are kind of spiritually immature and that's all true, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing there. And I think the idea that we can disparage people that show up the church on a regular basis that might not always have their heart in it is is the wrong I think that that's the wrong idea. Now we do get into the problem where there are a lot of people that are Christians because it's the cultural thing to do. Like cultural Christianity, the fact that you would show up the church that that and honestly really since the time of Constantine in a lot of ways that's been the norm. Like if you were living in Europe in most parts of Europe during the Middle Ages, you were a Christian not because you had any sincere beliefs or or even knew anything at all about your faith. You were a Christian because you were born into Christian Europe and you always went to church and that was just who you were. You didn't ask any questions. You, you just kind of put your head down and there was never any need for a personal connection or for any sort of intellectual commitment. And unfortunately, I think a lot of American churches, in, including especially Protestant churches, have done the exact same thing. So I, I think I think Matthew Bates is right here. If you feel the the need to be in community with other Christians, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working on you. Now, I can't tell you what that necessarily looks like for everybody. I don't necessarily think that uh, getting together and singing three worship songs and then having a sermon and then taking communion every Sunday morning is the only way that you can do church. I don't think that's the case, but I do think that it is one way. And I think that people that regularly show up for services like that are at least expressing the desire to continue to try or to continue to stay within the fold. And I think that those are people that if you have very wise ministers, who know how to build effective relationships. Those are exactly the kind of people that could be your absolute best attendees. They're just waiting for someone to give them more depth. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. So we shouldn't talk against that. And again, as uh, as Matthew Bates says here, I think that just the fact that the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is motivating somebody to go to church, that's a good thing. Even if it's not, even if it's not uh, necessarily the way that those of us that have been doing this for a while might anticipate, we have to remember though too, like Romans chapter eight, one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. I think it's eight thirteen. Uh, Paul says that it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is the one that crucifies our flesh, but this is not something that happens at once. He enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, but it's something that takes place over time. And I'm at a point in my life where I try to be very sensitive to the fact that other people are at different points in their spiritual journey than I am. And instead of doing what I did when I was a very zealous young Christian and judging them for not being as passionate and zealous as I am, I try to meet them where they're at and just get to know why they are the way they are. I think that that's an important and it's, it's an important way to approach people. So there's all that. The second thing that he says is a person using their body to serve others and obey Jesus. It's easy to play mind games, Bates says. And when it comes to sinful choices, most of us are Jedi level masters, Star Wars reference. I can personally attest to this fact. Selfish delusion and sinful rationalizations are never far away. Yes, I do deserve fill in your own non-cross-shaped blank. Yet scripture points us to uh, bodily obedience in the midst of community. The Bible is replete with warnings to pay the utmost attention to our physical actions. Scripture reminds us 
that our behavior reliably tracks whether we are really united to King Jesus. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. In context, Jesus is speaking about the coming of the advocate and teacher, the Holy Spirit. That's from John 14, by the way. Likewise, the Apostle John exhorts us to scrutinize our behavior. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. It's 1 John 2, 3. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. We need to study our actions because they reveal whether we're truly attached to King Jesus and his body. In other words, we must not be fooled by our own mind games. If what we identify as saving belief or faith is disembodied, it's not only useless, useless, it's not faith at all. It's a corpse. Our obedience will never be perfect, of course, but if a person claims to have faith and makes no real attempt to offer bodily loyalty to, G- to King Jesus, then it's safe to say that that person has quit the church. I definitely want to talk about this too. And I think that this is one of the big reasons why the Protestant church in the United States is prime for a failure. And I think it's been coming for a long time. And this is, again, another fatal flaw, I think, that goes back to the Protestant Reformation. There was so much emphasis, not necessarily with the reformers themselves, but with some of the reformers' followers, on making sure that you believed in exactly the correct doctrine. And so what became the true mark of Christian faith in a lot of uh, places? Well, I get, you know, and again, this is a medieval category. I'm not blaming this on Protestantism. I mean, there is a, a good argument that can be made that that correctly identifies the history of the Catholic Church vis-a-vis participation in the the community. If you believe certain things, you pay your tithes that you're, you know, you're a Catholic and you're a part of the real church and that's all you have to do. I think that there are many Protestants that picked up on that mindset and that that has been a characteristic failure in Protestantism since the Reformation. It's this idea that faith is not determined by your love for God and your love for your neighbors. Faith is not determined by giving allegiance to Jesus as king. Faith is not determined by acknowledging that we need him and that we can't that we can't um, that we can't forgive ourselves for our own sins. That's not what faith is. Faith is true. Faith is believing all of the right doctrines, and that's the reason why there are thousands and thousands of different Protestant denominations because. People will read the Bible, they will disagree about what they see in the Bible, and then they think that because another Christian who's sincerely trying to read the Bible and apply it to their faith has a different perspective on theology than they are, that they're not real Christians, and so we have to divide from them. And that fractionalism is just an inherent part of Protestantism, unfortunately, because we've emphasized, and we've emphasized theology over trying to serve and love our neighbors. Now, I do think that there is an extent to which progressive Christianity is a response to that. And I think it's the wrong response to it, but I think progressive Christians have tried to do incorrectly in my opinion, but they've tried to do the exact opposite where they focus entirely on what they consider to be serving their neighbors, which is actually, as I'm going to explain in a second, not very servants oriented anyways, at the expense of theology. And I think that you you have to have both, right? Like you you have to have good, the- and there are definitely things that you have to have boundaries around the church. There are definitely things that, that I, th- I think you, there are things that you can believe that make you not a Christian. I think that that's, that's true. What those things are, I know what some of them are. I think you have to believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. Like, I think that that is the definitive belief for all that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's what John says in first John, all those that believe that Jesus, uh, all the, those that, uh, the, 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 uh, 
quality that he attributes to the group of people that he calls Antichrist, literally against Christ and John, are that they deny that Jesus came in the flesh and they denied that he was the Messiah. I think if you deny those two things, then you're probably not a Christian. And the resurrection is a part of Jesus's Messiahship for John. So all of that's tied up there. But there's a lot of issues where there's gray area. And as I grow up and as I read my Bible more and more and more, I I just I know that there are so many things that I don't know. And I, I understand, I think, my own intellectual limits better than I did before. And I realized that everyone else that makes these these do or die issues out of theological propositions that aren't central to anything that we see in the Bible are, are headed down the wrong path. And I think that this is truly the reason why a lot of people leave church, because a lot of people think that being a Christian is believing the right thing. That's all that it is. And when some of those beliefs start to crumble, then they reject all of Christianity instead of simply rejecting the idea that their Christianity was just based on a very superficial understanding of certain theological principles. And we see a lot of people that deconstruct from fundamentalism that have this exact same problem. Well, a lot of like fundamentalist systematic theology is wrong about a lot of things. And it's not the purpose of this show to go into too many of the details today. You can look back in my back catalog. We deal with a lot of these theological issues there. But for instance, like when when you have the I'm, I'm, I'm right down the road, as I've said before, from the Creation Museum. Uh, it was built like five minutes from where my parents live. And I live like 15, 20 minutes away from the Creation Museum. And they teach young earth creationism. They believe that the earth was created in the literal six days and that the earth is 6,000 years old. And that if you don't believe that, you're not a true Christian. And so I know a lot of people that grew up in churches that were like that. And when they got older and they realized that not only does the scientific evidence that we have at our disposal seem to contradict that narrative, but that there are also theologians uh, and biblical scholars that also don't agree with a literal six days and a 6,000-year-old earth, then they have associated that, that, that young earth creationist position with their Christian faith. And instead of just rejecting young earth creationism, they wind up rejecting their entire faith. And I think a lot of people leave because of that. When in reality, what needs to happen is that we have to love and serve other people. The problem with progressive Christianity, as we've discussed on the show before, is that progressive Christianity in general, now there are a lot of great Christians out there that are are, are you know progressive or, or left-oriented in their politics that really do a good job of serving their community and loving other people, but there are a lot of them that want the government to step in and do all that work for them. And so it doesn't take a lot of time interacting with progressive Christians to realize that they want the federal government to step in and take money from working class people to increase welfare and to pay for people's student loans that they voluntarily took out to go to college to get degrees that they didn't need in fields that were never going to pay them what they were what 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 they uh, invested into their their degree and all kinds of other programs. They, like So they want the government to do all of this stuff. And they say that to be a good Christian means advocating for all these policies. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, advocating for a political policy is not serving other people. It's not at all. You're, adv- you're, you're advocating for somebody to put a gun to somebody else's head, take their money and their resources, and then do whatever social program you think is going to benefit people. Besides the fact that as good Austrians, we know that a lot of these social programs don't work and that there are second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth order consequences to all of these social policies that actually wind up hurting the very people that they are intended to help. It's not actually serving your neighbor. It's trying to get somebody else to do it using a gun. And that's the problem with that. And so I think what what uh, what Bates has outlined here is really helpful. The thing that we need to look at, I mean, you will know you will know the tree by its fruit, right? I mean that's that's deeply that's deeply biblical. Uh, our actions, right, actually have to reflect our beliefs. 
and those I mean again it's it's uh in, in first John going back to that that metaphor the 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 person we know that we have come to know him because we keep his commandments first John 2 3 it's very heavy hitting book James is another one that faith that works is dead it's very in James chapter 2 it's a very difficult statement for a lot of people to accept but it's the truth if you sincerely believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you have given your allegiance to him it's not just a matter of having the right theology I think that'll work itself out in time if if anyone can ever, well, no one can ever fully understand the infinite nature of God. And so the idea that someone's ever going to have a right theology, I think is, is deeply problematic, but that's a, that's a, that, that is a comment for another, another episode here. But the problem is, as Christians, we have to love and serve our neighbors. We have to take care of those that need help. And we have to be kind and merciful to those that are in our lives. Okay. We, and we, and this, this doesn't mean we have the government or we rely on our pastor to do it. It means we have to voluntarily do that ourselves. And I realize that that's very complicated. Being in a, being a teacher in a public middle school and working with people that I love very much, but who are not like, who are not like, um, who are not like radical Protestants like like I am, it's very difficult to know how to approach people. It really is. Like that's that's very, very difficult. Uh, but we have to do our best to love and serve other people. And that is an identifying mark of somebody that is still a part of the faith. Now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. The third and final point that he makes here is that the church is supposed to be missional. He says, third is a person participating in Christian mission. The gospel is about how King Jesus is bringing about restoration from rebellion through his incarnation, death, resurrection, enthronement, kingship, and return. His victory has created a people that he is in the process of rescuing, namely the church. If we are not responding to the good news that the Father and Holy Spirit are in the process of creating a restored people, then we remain in rebellion against the king's authority. If we are trying to be less selfish, that's good, but beside the point, if we're seeking to serve others, that greats, but still not the point. We need to seek virtues, not for their own sake, but for the Messiah's sake and his gospel's sake. The cross-carrying life is specific to Jesus's kingdom purposes. We are on a mission with Jesus. There is no far a war-free zone where we can opt out of the church to pursue our own moralities, values, and agendas. If we are not gathering with King Jesus, then we are scattering. There is no neutral, insulated space where we can deconstruct, take a break from Christian community, and figure things out for ourselves. Even while tearing down in order to rebuild, we have to remain under Jesus's authority through scripture and the Holy Spirit for our own sake and the sake of others. Our mission is to cultivate allegiance to King Jesus by being obedient disciples who teach others how to be disciples. As part of King Jesus's restorative gospel, the Holy Spirit guides those disciples together into ever greater levels of obedience. And then he goes on to talk about um, how he teaches undergraduates. Although the picture is partial, the future face of the world and Christianity with it stares at me when I stand at my lectern. I see emerging trends amid my students to frighten me. Eyes fixed on screens, apathy, lack of concern for God's moral standards, and dwindling church attendance. But one thing scares me above all else. When they first enter my classroom, most of the students seem to believe that even if Christianity happens to be fully true, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and I want to I, I want to I want to stop right there before we read the last end of this uh, this article because Bates makes an excellent point about the church needing to be missional, and I think that that is another area where we have dramatically failed in the last twenty or thirty years as American Christians. Now, I remember growing up in the church, and there were for those of you guys that were a part of like late 90s, early 2000s youth group culture. You know that there were all of those cheesy videos and posters and t-shirts and all of that stuff. And one of the main themes or one of the main trends is that we had to be like we had to be evangelical in our public schools, that we were supposed to go into our public schools and share the gospels and we weren't and share the gospel and we weren't supposed to be afraid of speaking the truth and we weren't supposed to be afraid of speaking about Jesus. But one of the things that that kind of evangelical impulse creates is a lack of authentic relationships with the people that we are trying to witness to. 
And that's a really big problem because one of the things that we have, that, that I grew up kind of thinking about and wrestling with, and this was something that I, I struggled with in high school because I was a part of that. I was a part of that youth group culture where I was told that I always had to be talking about Jesus and every relationship I had should lead to an opportunity to present the gospel. And every conversation that I had should lead to me being able to talk to somebody about go- the gospel. And what that does though, is that means that we as Christians never take time to build meaningful relationships with people that are not Christians. It's all just about giving them a message. It's a sales pitch. And in a lot of ways, I think the way that we've conceptualized domestic missions as a church in the 20th century is that it is it is just like being a salesman. You go out, you have a product, that product is the gospel, you cram a bunch of facts and information down somebody's throat, they ask you questions, you answer all those questions, and they believe in the the gospel, and that is how you do ministry and missions. But that's that's not it. Like that's that doesn't work. And especially not in our postmodern context. Like now maybe in the nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties when people still believed in objective truth or at least still had I mean I think people do still believe in objective of truth unconsciously, or um, but when people were more open to being proselytized like that, maybe that made sense back then. But it's never made sense in my con my context. And what it did was it led to a lot of people, and I made this mistake in high school. It led to a lot of people talking about Jesus when they did not have the relational capital to talk with somebody about Jesus. And it led to a lot of Christians making uh, virtue signaling type stands on issues that they didn't fully understand that actually turned people away from the gospel because again. There was no authentic relationship. And I think that one of the points that Bates highlights here that we need to really wrap our head around is if we want to be truly missional, I think that this is the sign of what it means to be a faithful Christian and that this is also one of the things that might actually prevent the decline of Christianity in America is that we as Christians have to learn how to build relationships with people that are different than us that don't just end in us presenting the gospel to them. Now, again, if you are faithful and your life is driven by Christian values, then people will see the gospel through the way that you live your life. Like that, that, that has to happen. You will be a, a, a like a living walking, um, a living walking presentation of the gospel. But we, at the ultimately, at the end of the day, we have to have authentic relationships first because no one's going to care what you think about Jesus, especially in a context where people are more skeptical of Christianity than ever before if they don't know that you love them and authentically care about them first. And so I think the best way that the church can be missional and it's, 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 it's is, is just to, just to have those relationships and build. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's really difficult, but Paul says in first Corinthians nine, it's one of the most powerful and challenging passages in all of the new Testament that he is, he becomes all things to all people in order that he might save some. And he says that to the Jews, he's like a Jew to the Gentiles. He's like a Gentile. And he makes the point here, not that he's changing any of his beliefs and it's not that he's, he's changing any of the things upon which he stands. And if someone asks him about Jesus being the Messiah, then he's going to stand there and tell them exactly what he thinks. But he understands that you have to present the gospel to people in a way that they understand. And he also understands you have to build authentic relationships with people in order to make that happen. And I think so many of us in American Christianity have tried to short circuit that process by building inauthentic relationships with other people only for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them that we forgot that it's actually our job to be missional. And I wonder how many people put their faith in Christ 
I can actually say as someone who is in ministry, there are a lot of them. How many people put their faith in Christ superficially because they felt like they were pressured into by someone they didn't know very well, and then they reject that later on, not long after? I think that that happens probably a lot. And in order for people to have a real authentic faith, they have to see those of us that that still believe and that still practice actually living it out and building relationships with them. Again, there is no one-size-fits-all model for this. I think that there were so many books made in the 1990s and early 2000s that said, you know what, if you approach your friends like this, then they will believe the gospel. But human beings are radically different, and they're a lot different now than they were back in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And so there is never going to be a one-size-fits-all missional solution to the church. It's just not going to happen. And you can't assume that the way that you show love and compassion to your mother is the same way that you show love and compassion to your coworker who's not a Christian or to your buddy who just wants to hang out and have a good time. Like we have an obligation to build those relationships, but we have to be wise in the way that we approach them. And I think that if we did that, we would actually wind up being more appealing to people, um, than, uh, than, than pushing them away. So I know there's a little bit of a tangent, but again, he's right. Like real Christians have a missional bent, but we, it can't be like, it can't be a forced and unnatural. It has to be us genuinely wanting people to know Jesus. And then also us genuinely living it out. And then also us genuinely building relationships with people so that they want to follow him. All right. So there's that. Um, let's see. So he says this to, to wrap this up. He says, in response, I encourage students to see that Jesus is reigning right now, socially, politically, morally, and that genuinely this world, this world harm follows when we ignore his directives. Check back in a few years and I'll tell you if I'm making any headway. I also see heartening trends in comparison with the decade prior. My current students show a deep concern for social well-being of others. They're more welcoming to outcast learners and misfits. That sounds a lot like King Jesus, right? They also learn to connect with others authentically, even as they struggle to learn how to do that through a thousand intervening screens. They are primed not simply to hear a Billy Graham style gospel invitation in a stadium, but to connect with fellow Christians who want to help them grow in loyalty. It is safe to say that the church's future depends on making allegiant disciples in the name of King Jesus. And it always has. Jesus has won the victory and will bring his rescuing intentions to a climax. Jesus is King now and forevermore that can never change. But when we wonder if we or others are in or out of the church, only one question matters. Is Jesus permitted to rule? Man, there's a lot to think about there, and there's a lot that I would I would like to say about that. Obviously, we're running short on time today, and I have been thinking for a while, and I know I've, I've teased on the show before, I have to be in the right mood to record this kind of an episode, but someday I'm going to explain why I'm not in ministry and why I decided not to make that my career, and I think a lot of these issues have a lot to do with that decision for me personally to not be in ministry. I do think that Matthew Bates is correct. When about a lot of these issues. If we grow up thinking that being a Christian is believing in certain sets of theological beliefs, or if we grow up thinking that being a Christian is going to church or occasionally reading the Bible or whatever it might be, then when people face any sort of substance or when people are challenged, they're going to leave because there's no substance to it, right? And it's true that in a lot of ways, uh, we in the late 90s and early 2000s, again, I keep on referring back to that period because I really do think that when the historians write the history of Christianity in the 20th and 21st century, that those decades, those two decades will be the pivotal transition points for the Christian church. I really do think that those two decades changed everything about American Christianity. And I think that those two decades set the seeds for, in a lot of ways, the the demise of American Christianity and our participation. 
a lot of that has to do with the fact that, again, like I said before, we were taught to think about Christianity as being a box uh, that we have in our brain instead of as being the box we put everything else in. I think a lot of it is that we grew up in churches that were more committed to theological beliefs and asking very difficult questions about the Bible. And I know a lot of people, myself included, that were very frustrated in high school and in college when they had legitimately challenging questions about the Bible that could not be answered by their pastors. And I know that that's the reason why a lot of people, maybe not, maybe it's not a reason why they leave, maybe it's not the reason why they leave the church, but it is a reason why they leave the church because they have legitimate adult questions and they're trying legitimately to figure out how to best put their faith into practice in a complicated world and they come up not getting answers that they want or that they need. And I think that as a church, we have to be more open to asking those questions and we have to give people more space to ask those difficult questions. So we brought up a lot of issues on the show today. There's more that I could say, but I think, I think that this is a pretty good place to leave it. I, I think just to, just to put a, just put a pin on this to make sure that we, we leave with a, we leave with a, 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 a thought or a challenge today. I really do believe that we have to take seriously the fact, especially if you are more of a traditional Protestant like I am, that people are leaving the church and they're leaving the church for a lot of reasons. And we also have to take responsibility for the fact that a lot of our models of ministry have not been very effective and a lot of our conceptualization of the role of the church in the world has not been very effective. Now, as good libertarians, we all know we're not Christian nationalists and we're not progressive Christian nationalists either. We don't believe that the government has a role at all in inculcating faith or in implementing the vision of the church for a world that is truly just. It's our responsibility as Christians, and I think that we have abrogated that to the political class, and we've abrogated that to the media class, and we've abrogated that to our our pastors. We've given them the responsibility of doing what we as a united church is supposed to do, and that is be the people of God and represent Jesus, who is the Messiah to the entire world. And I think that we can solve a lot of these problems if we go back to that method. Again, I've said it on several shows, the, the, the most powerful testimony to Christianity. And I think the thing that really solves the decline that could really solve the decline of American Christianity, if we as a church, if we as a church returned mentally to the period between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the rise of Constantine, when the church had no legal protection and didn't seek legal protection, but instead lovingly and faithfully served its neighbors, were committed to the preaching of the gospel, and were committed to growing in their knowledge of and their faithfulness to Christ. That alone, despite the fact that there were times during that period when the church was actively persecuted by the Roman government, it was that bold witness alone that drew so many people to Christianity so that by the time of Constantine, he could not ignore Christianity as a major force in the Roman Empire. And that's completely spirit-driven. All right, that was that's enough for today. We're at fifty minutes. I highly recommend you to go and read Matthew Bates' article. There were the article. There were a lot of different directions I could have gone with that today, but I've been thinking a lot about people leaving the church lately because I know a lot of people that have left the church, and I, I feel like this was a good place to uh, to talk about that. As always, if you have any thoughts on this issue, it's very important. Feel free to email me uh, theprotestantlibertarian at gmail or reach out to me on Twitter at prolibertypod. I'd love to have that conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions about why people are leaving the church and what we can do to bring them back in. Very, very interesting topic. Thank you guys so much for listening to the end of the show. Again, if you get a chance, go over to libertarianchristians.com and support me and all the other great podcasters. Help me maybe not put food on my table and maybe not even buy me a full tank of gas, but at least a couple gallons will help me drive to the places that I need to go. So that's that's helpful. So go over and support us at libertarianchristians.com. And thank you so much for listening to this show. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to me at theprotestantlibertarian at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. You can follow me at the handle at ProLibertyPod. Again, that is at ProLibertyPod. And you can also visit me at theprotestantlibertarianpodcast.com. At theprotestantlibertarianpodcast.com, you can also support the Christians for Liberty Network and the Libertarian Christian Institute. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and we will see you next Tuesday.